This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Robert Porter. He is currently renovating the first floor of his duplex in Albany to accommodate handicapped veterans, whom he feels are often not well provided for by the government. Porter himself served in the Marine Corps. He dons a scarlet uniform with brass buttons and a chest full of medals to become gunny claws, helping with the Marines' Toys for Tots program. Porter says the Marines taught him about honor, courage, and commitment. And at age 54, he's still in top physical shape and still works harder at what he does because of being a Marine. You have those standards you hold yourself to, he said. Walk us through a typical day of boot camp. If it is not like the movies that we all picture, just sort of walk us through what a day was like. Well, um, a day for me in boot camp in 1986 is very different from the day of boot camp today. I mean, it's it's only you know a few years later, but it's it, it has changed quite a bit. Um, you have relatively at very early in the morning, depending on the schedule, it depends on what time you'll you'll get up, and uh, you're immediately uh, starting out your day. You you have to do your morning routine. So you have to go to the bathroom, you have to shave, you have to brush your teeth, you have to make your rack, you have to get dressed. And all of this is in a time frame that's very constrained. You don't have a long time to do things. And if somebody does it wrong, you start over from the beginning. Uh, it's very attention to detail in, in the minute details, um, because it's the details that, that you build the foundation on to make things bigger and larger and get better. And the expression is you learn how to crawl, you then learn how to walk, and then you run. And so if you can't crawl, you're never going to get to the run stage. Hmm. Um, once you're done with that, you're marched off to the chow hall. And, you know, you don't think you're given a lot of time to eat your breakfast, but you do get enough time to eat, eat your food. You get out of breakfast and you start your training day. Some of the days will be in a classroom where you're learning about Marine Corps history or you're learning first aid or you're learning customs and courtesies in the military. Uh, you're learning about uh, um, how about hazing and, and the things not to do to, to people. Um, you know, when I joined the Marine Corps, like I said, it was a, it was a different time and homosexuality was not a, not a part of the military. Now it is. So that part of their training has transitioned and so they get the, the equal opportunity, you know, it expanded into include homosexuals. And so uh, you also then learn uh, you have your physical activity. You may go for a run. You may go through a confidence course. You may go through uh, um, uh, what else? Uh, we have a martial arts training program called McMath. You could go through that. Uh, we have a swim week where, you, where we learn how not to drown. Um, being a Marine and the, the name being water itself, Marine, where we go on naval ships and we travel across the ocean. So we have to know how to survive in the water. And um, that can be a traumatic experience for people that have a phobia of water. Uh, part of that training is they have to go off a 10 foot tower into the water. And so if a person has a phobia of heights, 
and a phobia of water, it makes it twice as hard for them to, to go through that training. But um, almost everybody makes it through. It's, it's a really good part of the training. And, of course, there's the marksmanship portion. That's two weeks of our training where you learn how to shoot a rifle. Uh, when I went through, it was iron sights. And you shot the rifle from 200, 300, and 500 yards with iron sights. Uh, the target you're looking at is no bigger than the fingernail on your pinky. What are what are iron know, what are iron sights? What so does... iron sights are the metal sights that are attached to the rifle itself. I see. Um, the the military has now transitioned to using a scope, oh. sort of like um, you see hunters using scopes on their rifles. Okay. And another and so, term, just in case other people are like me and not acquainted with them, another term you used, you said you make your rack? This is after you got up? What? What is that? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I try to translate things into yeah. civilian speak. Um, your rack is your bed. Oh. <laughs> you make your bed. Oh, wow. I bet yeah. that yeah, would so make... every morning you make your bed. Every mother proud, having a son or daughter making their bed first thing. Okay. <laughs> so... Then well, um, you're, you're, most mothers would not believe the, how well their children would learn how to make a bed. The expression is, you can bounce a quarter off of it, is true. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So then after these various different kinds of training, um, what happens at the end of the day? You, do you get to relax at all? Okay, so um, through the day, of course, you would have a lunchtime and... Once again, you go through the chow hall. Um, at the end of the day, you have your dinner meal, and you go through the chow hall once again. Um, the Marine Corps Recruit Depot in San Diego actually um, had held the Guinness Book of World Records for feeding the most people in an hour. So you eat fast. So kind of tells it tells you. Uh, well, a lot of people go through and, and they eat very fast. True. Yeah. Um, and so. Uh, after that, you, you have a little bit more training, and then you, you go back to the squad bay where your rack, your bed is, and everybody sleeps. And um, you go through your evening routine, and part of your evening routine, of course, is showering, shaving, and everything else. And um, you then have what is called an hour of free time uh, right before you go to bed. And during that time, you are capable of writing a letter home, um, shining your, well, back when I was in, you had to shine your boots and shine your shoes and do other things and get things ready for the next day. Um, you get your laundry ready. Uh, and generally you, you'd have a, a, a little time to decompress and, and talk to your, your rack mate about the things that occurred during that day. Um, I can still remember my rack mate, uh, we went alphabetically, so my rackmate's last name was Mac, and my last name was Porter, and we were rackmates for a whole 13 weeks. And, uh, you know, one of my best friends uh, for life, my squad leader, his last name was Tustin, and fortunately, uh, we're still friends on Facebook, and we talk to each other now and then. Oh, wow. So what things did you take away from this besides these deep friendships um, and maybe making your bed and eating fast? Um, what, what were the values that, um, you know, have stayed with you? Uh, like you talked about attention to detail. And um, uh, can you just talk a little about that? 
Um, the the Marine Corps quantified those values into uh, a concise form, and it's now called honor, courage, and commitment. And um, each one of those is broken down into to smaller things, and we have what is now called core values. Because even though our drill instructors exemplify, like, whoa, were examples for all of this, it wasn't actually written down and, and broken down so that people could see it and understand it. And so um, we now have portions of, of our training which are called core values. Uh, one of those training sessions, uh, when the recruits first get there, is uh, about suicide and, you know, how bad it is, how terrible it is for not just that individual, but everybody else who's involved. If you know anything about suicide, um, when one family member commits suicide, sometimes um, a close friend or another family member will also because of that trauma that uh, affects them. So uh, that's one thing. Um, you le- also learn about, you know, uh, avoiding drugs. Um, so, you know, keeping your body healthy. Uh, I'm 54 years old right now. If I was to shave my beard, which is turned a little bit gray, you wouldn't think I'm 54. You'd think I'm younger because I'm still physically fit. And I took that away from, uh, the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. um, the attention to detail when you when you get out of the Marine Corps and you're working for somebody, you know you work a little bit harder, you do a little bit better than somebody else because you have those standards that you hold yourself to that are usually higher than somebody else. So uh, I've been working for a painter uh, one summer, and you know he he would have to the. the the foreman would have to be on the other painters, you know, checking on them every five minutes, making sure that they're doing what they're doing. They're not on a smoke break. They're not going to the bathroom every 10 seconds, not, not working. And after a couple of days, you know, he'd tell me to be there at eight o'clock in the morning and I'll be there at seven forty-five. He'd tell me what I had to do for the day and I'll do it. When I got done, I'll go find him and say, Hey, I'm done. What do you need me to do next? Hmm. You know, and, and that wasn't what the other workers were doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when the, when my time was up, you know, he's like, no, don't go. I want you to keep working. And I'm like, no, I've, I'm fine. I just, I'm done for now. I'll, I'll do something else. Wow. Nice. So after you finished your initial boot camp training, how, how did your career unfold? You ended up committing a large chunk of your life to the Marines and what was it you did and what was it that kept you at it, committed to it? So, um, unlike similar to college, I would say, uh, you're generally the first enlistment in the military is four years. So when you sign a contract to join, join the Marine Corps or a branch of the service, you have an active duty time of four years and an inactive duty time of four years. So it's a total of eight years, but the last four, you're out of the military, you're working a civilian job, you're doing whatever. But if something was to happen, they would be able to call you back. And uh, in case of an emergency, they'd be able to call you back and you'd already still have all that training and they wouldn't have to train somebody new. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so you have four years of your life. In my, in my case, I signed my contract and, and it was, uh, under the quality enlistment program and I signed for six years and the Marine Corps gave me a bonus of $4,500 sort of like, uh, 
signing for the NFL. I, you know, I got a bonus. Um, I was also guaranteed uh, my military job uh, as opposed to just the military field. So the military field I was in was law enforcement. My military job was military police. If I just joined as a field, when I got to my training, I could have been put into the corrections unit, work in a brig, or I could have been in the law enforcement side, work as a police officer. I really didn't want to work in a prison, a brig, so I chose to sign for two extra years and get guaranteed law enforcement. And so uh, that was a bonus for me. I was also guaranteed uh, corporal, which is the fourth rank up. And it usually takes um, somebody uh, at least three or four years to get that rank. And I was going to get it in 18 months. So that was a bonus for me, um, which has also uh, increased my pay because I was a higher rank. I was able to pick uh, what is called the dream sheet for your duty location where you're stationed. And that was either East Coast, West Coast, or overseas. And since I wanted to travel, I picked overseas. And I was stationed in Okinawa, Japan, for my first duty station after my military training as a a law enforcement. And uh, that's where I was uh, exposed to the Air Force. My first training in the Marine Corps was at Lackland Air Force Base for law enforcement. So you're... You were assigned, and you wanted to be overseas. You were in Okinawa. What was that like? Um, Okinawa is uh, roughly, um, I think, uh, 13 miles long and two miles wide. <laughs> it's a pretty small island. Yeah. Um, the, the Marines there, we affectionately call it the Rock, after Alcatraz. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, it's a tropical uh, paradise, really. I mean, if you look at it, it's beautiful. Uh, it's It stays very warm year-round. Uh, unfortunately, every once in a while, a typhoon will hit. And since you're on an island, it doesn't lose any of its strength. A typhoon is the same as a hurricane in Florida. Uh-huh. And I had to go through a few of those. Um, that's pretty fun. That's exciting uh, when you're young. And um, from Okinawa, I was in a unit that deployed. Uh, we went places. I wasn't just stuck on Okinawa. So I went to Korea for training three times. I went to the Philippines for training one time. And I went to Thailand for vacation for two weeks. Nice. So you, one of the reasons you said you signed up was to see the world. Tell us, tell us about the world you saw. <laughs> what were those places like? Um, the, 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 thing that I really came back with seeing the other countries, um, the Far East and the Middle East later on in my career, because I went to Iraq in 2006 and 2007, is it gives you a real appreciation for how beautiful and how great and how wonderful it is to be in the United States. Um, right now, we're, we're in the midst of a political upheaval. People are fighting over what's going to happen with this last election. And you know, there are countries where they, the people don't get that choice. There are countries where people can't vote. There's pun- countries where people are told which way to vote. You know, the government isn't run by elected officials. It's run by the military or it's run by corrupt politicians. Um, the, the, the minimum wage that we have in the United States, they don't have a minimum wage. 
um, when I was in the Philippines back in the 80s, I think the uh, national average for yearly wage for a person working in the Philippines was something like $20 a year. You know, and it's like, of course, everything costs less. You know, their food costs less. I think a, a, um, a beer back then was three cents. You know, mm-hmm. when if I wanted to, to buy a beer, uh, you know, everything costs less, but you're also, you don't have the opportunities that you have in this country. If you didn't, uh, you know, when I was in Iraq, if you, when Saddam Hussein was in power, if you weren't a part of the Ba'ath Party, Saddam Hussein's party, you didn't get into politics, you didn't get education, you didn't get uh, medical supplies, you didn't have any rights under the, the law. And so it gives you a really great appreciation of how great this country is. If anybody ever thinks um, that, you know, we something could be better somewhere else, I, I, I would love to see them go to that other country that they think is better and really see how it is there and see how well we have it here in the United States. Even with all our problems, we have it so much better than anybody else. And that's the underlying thing that I saw in every country that I went to, you know, so I'm so glad that I'm, that I'm here and I'm home and I'm able to talk to you and I'm able to have my friends and my family. Yeah. So tell us about your actual work in the military police. What, what did that consist of? And you did it for how long? It was decades, right? Um, I was in the Marine Corps for 21 years, four months, and 19 days. <laughs> you uh, have it down to the day. That's unusual. Well, uh, one of the things that, that uh, occurs in the military is, is your uh, performance is also done by your time in the Marine Corps and your time in your pay grade. And so everything is down to the day. I see. Uh, I, was merit- I was meritoriously promoted uh, out of boot camp to PFC on the second of the month. Now, everybody who was promoted because they had earned it through time and grade in, in that they were promoted on the first of the month. So if it came down to it later on and two of us were being looked at for the next promotion, that person who was promoted on the first would have one day of, ahead of me and would be more likely to be picked than I would. So it goes down to the days. I see when you're when you're talking about about things in the military. Well, for um, those twenty one years, four months, and nineteen days, you must have felt committed to keep at it that long. What? Just tell us what it was you did, what the job consisted of, and why why you stuck with it. Well, um, it's it, the, the every enlistment is a time frame, so it's usually like I said, four years. So after my first six years, uh, I went from being a basic police officer that you see here in Albany or Schenectady or Gilderland to being selected to be a detective. Uh, in the Marine Corps, we call it the Criminal Investigation Division. So I went from wearing a uniform every day and driving a patrol car to wearing civilian clothes and doing the actual investigation in, into more serious crimes. I see. And so... Um, you know, I was ready to get out. If I if I hadn't been selected for that, I was looking at, you know, possibly leaving the Marine Corps and, and going in, coming back to New York and being a state trooper or an Albany police officer or something like that. But I was then offered this, this advancement that I probably wouldn't get, you know, if I 
came back to Albany and, and worked for a long time for a civilian police department. So that enticed me to stay in for another four years. And um, being that it was a select job and a select group of people, I was actually given, uh, once again, the bonus for staying in the Marine Corps to do that job. Um, some of the more highly uh, skilled jobs in the Marine Corps, you know, are IT guys, just like in the civilian world that, you know, will protect computers against malware and viruses and everything like that. Those guys will get even larger bonuses. Uh, some of our pilots will get even larger bonuses because they're competing with the civilian market. The military pay really isn't that great. So they'll give a person a bonus to stay in the Marine Corps to keep doing those high demand jobs and those highly skilled jobs. And so uh, I became a criminal investigator for, for a time. Um, my, I was actually trained in some additional specialties on top of regular criminal cr investigations. I, I was uh, sent to uh, occult crimes investigation. I was sent out for uh, gang investigations. I went to the Orange County Sheriff's Department for a homicide investigation. Uh, so that's another thing that, you know, we got in the Marine Corps. We, we also trained with civilian police agencies and civilian uh, and federal uh, agencies that I might not get somewhere else if I was, you know, just a regular patrolman back here in New York. Mm -hmm. So those were also advantages that I got. Um, uh one of the instructors I had who was with the FBI had actually been in the original movie Silence of the Lambs with Jodie Foster when she was at the FBI Academy. And, you know, he's in the background teaching one of the classes and he's like, yeah, there, there I am. You know, <laughs> so, you know, that was pretty fun. Um, and uh, so that was another four years. And from there, I then went to uh, what is, again, a deployable unit as a Marine, and I stopped doing the criminal investigations. I stopped doing the law enforcement on a base, and I started working more uh, along the lines of the infantry in the Marine Corps. So I was out shooting the heavy weapons that the Marine Corps has, the 50 caliber machine gun, the Mark 19 automatic grenade launcher, more rifles, driving our tactical vehicles, the Humvees back then. Uh, and doing the jobs out in the field. So I did a lot of time out in our training areas, out in 29 Palms, California, which is one of the largest Marine bases. And out there, we'd have a combined arms exercise. It's called a CACS. And you'd have the infantry there. They'd be running around on the ground. You'd have the air wing there. So you'd have helicopters and the, and the F-18s and the jets there. You'd have the artillery out there. You'd have the tanks out there. And they're all working together in a simulated uh, combat environment, driving up and down the, the, the base and, and doing the training out there. And so that was another four years. Uh, while there, we got, we were, uh, got ready because you're, you're always, there's always something going on in the world. We got ready to go to Korea several times because of North Korea acting, uh, you know, a little bit crazy and causing the, the United States a little bit of concern. Um, we got ready to go to the Middle East a couple times, but never went. Uh, so all that training was to go to 
either Iraq, Afghanistan, or Korea. And so it was a very, very hectic time there. But once again, you know, very rewarding. Uh, And then I had uh, to go out of my regular job into what the Marine Corps calls a B-billet. And uh, that is to round out your career and, and get more experiences outside of your job and so the, the B billets for the Marine Corps are uh, the recruiters that we all see. Uh, they're in Colony Center, and they're encouraging young men and women to join the Marine Corps. Um, the other one is uh, embassy duty. The Marines guard all our embassies around the world. And the other one, the most uh, recognized, of course, is the Marine drill instructor. And I took the test. I, I made all the qualifications and I became a Marine drill instructor at the Marine Corps Recruit in San Diego. And at some point you mentioned that you were also sent to Iraq, right? What was, which phase was that in? Um, Iraq was towards the end of my career. I was in 2006 and 2007. And I was what? A, a drill instructor. You were going to say? Yeah, I was asked what you did there. You were a drill instructor in Iraq. Is that what you said? No, no, no. I was I was a drill instructor in '98. I see. So I'm I'm about, I'm about halfway through my career. Oh gosh. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to jump. I didn't want. I didn't want to jump to the end. No, I thought we came no. to the end because I thought that that B billet no. was like the the capping, you know, the capstone. But I was wrong. So keep us going after the B billet, where you were a drill instructor in San Diego. Then what came next? So uh, while I was a drill instructor, I had three platoons where I trained uh, civilians to be Marines. And um, I was also a swim instructor as a drill instructor. So I worked at the depot swim tank and I taught ground proofing. Um, The only person who can really swim better than I am is a Navy SEAL. Uh, That was that was a great time. I love that. I love being in, in and around the pool. And I probably got into the best physical condition I ever was in in my whole 21 years because I was able to swim every day and work out and uh, train recruits how to swim. So that was probably the best physical condition I was ever in. Um, After that, you have to go back to your regular job. And um, I was able to go from there to another training command where I actually trained the Marines who just got out of the boot camp how to be military police. So I went to Fort Leonard, Missouri. Now, if you recall, I was a student at Lackland Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. The Marine Corps switched from the Air Force to the Army to get more combat training than the Air Force could provide. So I was an instructor at Fort Leonard, Missouri for three years where I taught Marines how to be military police and how to drive a patrol, patrol vehicle, how to shoot their pistol, uh, how to defend themselves with unarmed self-defense, how to use a uh, impact weapon such as a nightstick. Uh, they got sprayed, sprayed with pepper spray or OC, as we call it. Um, they're now getting tasered uh, as part of their training because they're, they carry a taser, uh, just like the civilian police department. Mm-hmm. Teach them how to drive a patrol car and teach them how to drive a tactical vehicle because the military police 
not everybody gets assigned to a law enforcement detachment. They get assigned to a field unit that deploys to Iraq or Afghanistan. So they have to know how to do the tactical side as well as the law enforcement side. And that was three years there. Um, after that, I was stationed back out in California with a deployable unit. And I got ready, did my uh, training, and I was deployed to Iraq uh, in 2006 and, and came back in 2007. And what did you do in Iraq? I had two jobs in Iraq. Um, the first job, I was in the, the, my command was very small, and so I actually became the commanding officer, even though I was enlisted of the unit that went to Iraq. And we had several jobs there. Uh, we were on El Takatum, sectionally known as TQ. It was a big logistics base for the Marine Corps. And we had uh, we oversaw the perimeter security of the base. So we made sure that the fence line was secure and that the insurgents couldn't get into onto the base. We also made sure that the roads between our base and Fallujah and Ramadi were free from enemy activity, so there weren't any IEDs planted on the roads there. We also had to ensure that everybody working on the base was a friend of ours. They weren't any, there weren't any enemies or spies on the base, so we identified everybody that worked on the base and ran their, their fingerprints and biometric, biometrical information through computers and made sure that you know nobody was a Russian spy or anything crazy like that. And that was my first six months. Oh, and one more. Uh, my Marines are also tasked with uh, a personal security detail. They were basically Secret Service agents for the commanding general of the base. So wherever he went to, they provided security for him. Uh, and so they're basically like our, the Secret Service around the president, hmm. which is a very, very uh, intense detail. Yeah. And then... Um, that was the first six months, and I was there during the surge, if you recall, where the president said that we needed more troops in Iraq, and so we sent more units there to, to quell the, the insurgents. And there was a repositioning of the units in Iraq, and the Army stopped covering one area, and the Marine Corps went out and covered it. And part of that was uh, taking over, uh, training the Iraqi police to do their job, in Iraq. And since I had been a drill instructor, I had been a military police instructor, I had been a criminal investigator, a military policeman, out of all the Marines that I had in my disposal, in my command, I was the best suited for taking that job. So I volunteered for it. And the next six months that I was in Iraq, I was um, off of the base and I was out in the town of Rawa. Uh, Iraq, and I uh, was working with and trying to train the Iraqi police. So every day I'm out there interacting with the Iraqis, trying to to instill in them the standards and the morals that American police have versus what they had under Saddam Hussein, which was uh, basically they were thugs. So how did that go? Describe what that was like. Um, it was, uh, different, of course. Um, 
the uh, insurgents really didn't like us working there with them. Um, I don't know if you've heard, but there's rumors that um, there's a bounty on our service members' heads in Afghanistan. I've heard paid by uh, Russia. Yes, I read those news reports. But I'm, did you speak the language or did they have to learn in English? How, how did that work, just instructing them? Okay, so I'll get to that in a second. The reason I said the current situation with the bounties, when I was an instructor, when I was training the Iraqi police, our intelligence guys said that there was a bounty on our head. And this is back in 2007. Anybody that was out training the Iraqis, of course, the enemy wanted to get rid of us before anybody else. So there had allegedly been a bounty on our head, and I heard upwards of $50,000. I can't confirm that, you know, but that was what was told to us, and I could understand why they'd want to take out the instructors training the Iraqi police. Um, uh, so I learned a little bit of Arabic. Um, I didn't learn, I wasn't fluent. There were certain commands that I, I used to be able to speak uh, so that they understood some of the things I, I needed them to do immediately. But I had uh, three interpreters that would translate for me to the police. Some of the police um, were somewhat fluent in English and there was um, my police chief was actually very fluent in English, and so I could have a, a conversation with him without an interpreter, which is good, because at times the interpreters, depending on which interpreter you had and where they were from beforehand, depended on how well they interpreted the English to Arabic. Because just like in the United States, um, you know, if you're from down south and you say a certain phrase like, you all come, you all come back now, you hear? That means nothing really to somebody from new york <laughs> just, you know you see it on tv so um i was actually with one of my interpreters and he supposedly translated what i said and the uh individual i was talking to in better english than i used said my interpreter was an idiot and didn't translate properly oh my goodness oh my goodness <laughs> so so that you know that was it um being I, I worked with the police, I would eat with the police. I would uh, have to learn their customs. Uh, one of the customs that the, that is big in uh, Iraq and Muslim countries is your left hand is considered unclean, dirty. So you don't touch people with your left hand. You don't touch items with your left hand. You don't do anything with your left hand. And you're left-handed. Um, Didn't you say you're left-handed? Um, ambidextrous. I learned how to use my left hand. So... Um, I had to consciously not use my left hand for things, even though I could. I could. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I was there actually when Saddam Hussein was found and executed. And um, there were people there who, who honestly believed that Saddam Hussein was good for their country, and they were very upset. And, of course, we were put on a higher alert because, you know, the military thought that there might be some repercussions during that time frame. And so we, we were on a heightened alert. And fortunately for us, nothing happened where we were. Uh, but that wasn't true across the country. You know, there was always things happening. Um, we uh, were rebuilding the town 
and we were rebuilding and uh, making the town hall and the mayor's office uh, so that they had something to use because during the invasion and the war, a lot of things got destroyed. And unbeknownst to us, the insurgents were able to get into that building and plant uh, a bomb. And so we're in our police station. We're doing our, our normal routine. And all of a sudden, this massive explosion goes off, destroys this mayor's office next to us. The whole place is engulfed in a cloud of smoke and dust and debris. Fortunately, nobody was injured, but, uh, you know, we didn't know immediately what had occurred. So we all go out and take our, our positions and, and are trying to figure out what actually happened. And I was standing on the roof of the police station with another Marine. And as the dust settled, I was looking to the south and I noticed that I could see the Euphrates River. And I turned to the Marine next to me and I said, that's interesting. I don't remember seeing that. And he's like, what are you talking about? It's always been the South. I go, yeah. Um, but I thought there was a building there. And so we looked over the edge of our building and looked down on the ground and what had been a three-story building was now just a pile of rubble. Oh. The insurgents had blown it up. Whew, that was a close call. Um, so I'm just so sorry we're running out of time and there's so much I didn't get to ask you, but after going from... We can always do this again. We can have yeah, a part two if you want. After going from this kind of intense experience, now you're back in your home territory and just tell us a little because I think this is really what got me interested in talking to you in the first place just a little about the project you're involved in now because you have this sense of veterans with handicap not being well looked after and just tell tell us a little about what what you're doing now okay so uh if a veteran is disabled and is service-connected through the Veterans Administration. Uh, they get a rating. I'm 60% service-connected. I'm, I'm still able to walk around and, and do everything I do, but I have uh, a laundry list of problems that are, are wrong, and I go to the VA for my appointments. In fact, I have a, my annual appointment on Monday, December 7th, and um, the VA itself, the Veterans Administration, will retrofit and remodel a veteran's home if they need it. The problem is out of all of these veterans that we've seen come home from all of the wars over these years, currently they're only doing 30 houses in the whole United States. That's not even one home per state. Mm -hmm. And so we have civilian organizations out there. Uh, one is led by Gary Sinise, uh, towers, the, the Tunnels to Towers program, where they helped uh, a local Air Force veteran, uh, Home for Joe, and they did that through donations. And so between seeing the VA not doing enough for us and the Gary Sinise Foundation, and I, I don't need a house for myself, I bought a duplex, and I'm currently retrofitting the first floor apartment uh, with a handicap ramp, a handicap accessible door. Uh, you'll see a, a 
and hopefully you'll see the picture of the bathroom kitchen area that I'm going to, I'm tearing out right now so I can put in uh, one that's accessible for a handicapped person. And just an, another question that I had that I think is so important, because I've talked to you earlier, back when you were, you know, up in Bern and, and speaking to the crowd at Town Hall there about things people just don't understand about what it means to have been a veteran. And I think that might be a good way to end this conversation. What should we know? What should people who have not been in military service um, understand about you and other people who have been? What are the most important things um, that we're missing? I, I think the, the, the most important thing is um, it is very inappropriate for somebody to ask any veteran if they've killed anybody. If they feel that they are comfortable to talk to you about that, uh, don't be alarmed. Um, they're, they're just like uh, the 12 steps or any other uh, therapy. You know, you, you work through things and you talk through things to, to get that uh, issue resolved. But it's important that you don't ask the person that question. Um, and I think the other thing to understand is that, um, you know, the best way I described it to, to my own family is, you know, if you have a, a guard dog and it, you want it to protect you, you have to understand that you're going to train it to do a job to protect you, but it isn't going to harm you. It's there to protect you and it's your, it's there for you. Um, and so it may look vicious. It may look ferocious. You may not understand its training and everything that it's done, but it's not going to hurt you just because it has that training. Um, and, you know, I was gone for 20 plus years and people will say to me, you've changed. You're no longer the same person I knew. You're, you're different. And I'm amazed you know, that they don't think that they've changed also. When I left, Crossgates was half the size it is now. Uh, the exit off of the Northway onto the throughway to the, you know, I-90 was half the size it was. Albany Medical Center, you know, is now much larger. St. Peter's is much larger. We, you know, everything has changed. Everything continuously changes. And to tell somebody that has been in the military that you've changed, and not accept the fact that you've changed, everybody else has changed also. You know, my parents got divorced. My parents moved. My brothers moved. My brothers had different jobs. Everybody's changed. Nobody's been frozen in stasis and nothing's changed for them. So that's another big thing is, is don't accuse somebody. Don't say to somebody, oh, you've changed, and not think that everybody, everything else has changed also. Well, thank you. I think these are really some good things to carry away at the end of this conversation. And I thank you so much for sharing your experiences, and I wish you the best with your project. Thank you. I'm glad to have been here and, and hopefully uh, helped you understand some, some things about the military, especially the Marine Corps. Um, 
And I hope this uh, people who listen to this understand that. And if they do, if they would not want any more clarification, would ever like to talk to me, uh, I would be willing to talk to people about it at any time. So uh, let's have a, a, a good time. And it's now uh, the holiday season. Uh, the Marine Corps Toys for Tots program could really use our help. It's one of my other uh, big things that I'd like to do. And so uh, please donate.